I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, starting today exactly where we left off last week in verse 21. The first verse of our passage today marks a major, major turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, in verses 13 through 20, Jesus was about as far away as he ever got from the city of Jerusalem. If you remember, he was up north in Caesarea Philippi. And that's about as far away from Jerusalem as Jesus ever was in his life. And there in Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples what we called the question. Right? The question, the the question that this theological biography we call Matthew has been asking and answering for for us from chapter 1, verse 1. What's the question? Who is Jesus? Right? Keep your eye on the ball. Who is Jesus? Jesus said to his disciples, who do you say I am? And we thought together of how there are several potential answers to that question. He could be a liar. He could be a lunatic, a crazy man. He could be a legend. All this actually didn't happen. Or all that's left is he's the Lord. He is who he says he is. Who we just sang about. And how you answer that question determines the course of your life. Both now and forever. Well, do you remember what Simon Peter's answer was to the question? Did Peter pass the test? Yes, he got an A++, right? He said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. That is right. God gave Peter the correct answer. And then Jesus gave Peter what we called the promise, right? He he renamed him Rocky. And he said, Rock, on the basis of your right answer to the big question, I am going to build my new covenant community, my church, on you, the rock of Peter, and your right answer to this question. He would give to Peter and the church the authority needed to be an unstoppable force for the kingdom of heaven. Not even death would prevail against them. Jesus said, I will build my church. I'll bet that Tim and Debbie drew from that, those words many times as they planted, was it four churches in Lima, Peru? You didn't do it. Jesus did it, right? I will build my church. And we're along for the ride. We get to be a part of that. I will build my church, Jesus said. And so now in verse 21, Jesus turns a major corner. He begins to set his face toward Jerusalem. No more strategic withdrawals to a Gentile populated territory. He begins to head towards his fate. And he begins to explain in plain terms to his disciples exactly what was going to happen to him. In fact, he began to explain what kind of a Christ he was going to be. Peter had been right that he was the Christ, but he didn't really know what that meant. You ever use a word you didn't know what it was? You kind of hoped I said it right, right? Well, Peter got the right answer, but he didn't have the content to fill up that word Christ. In verse 20, Jesus had told them, don't tell anyone that he's the Christ. That's the right answer. I'm the Christ, but don't tell anybody. Why did he say that? It's because they didn't understand what that word meant. But now he was going to explain it to them. 
Let's read the first verse. Verse 21. Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, see how there's a turning point? From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. Let's pray together. Lord, we've just sung this, and can it be holy, 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 man of sorrows. And we get it. We, we, we say we've seen the light. But Lord, help us to get it in a deeper, more fresh, more immediate, maybe more wide, more real way now. Help us to focus in on your words, to hear your spirit speak to us through these inspired words, to change our hearts, to change our minds, to change our lives, and to reorient us, to refocus us on following Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. So finally, we're going to get to our hide the word verse. Matthew 16, 24. This has been our memory verse since like the second week of January. I thought we would reach Matthew 16, 24 a lot more quickly than we did. But it has been good to repeat it over and over again. Has it been good for you the last couple months to repeat these words? Say it with me one more time. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Our sermon title today is Take Up His Cross. Oh, got to turn it on. Take Up His Cross. What a thought that is. This last week, this is all I've been thinking about. What does that mean? Take Up His Cross. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, and we all do, right? We all want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here this morning. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that's the focus of our whole sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, right? Every week. The first slide says, following Jesus. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. Maybe this should be our memory verse all year long. It's definitely worth meditating on. What does it mean? Before Jesus tells us to take up our cross, however, He tells us that He will be taking up His I've got two main points this morning, and here's number one. Jesus had to take up his cross for us. Let's look more closely at verse 21. Look at verse 21. There's a tiny little word in verse 21 that is just mind-blowing when you think about it. From that time on, from the time when Peter got the question right, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, we are very familiar with all that, right? You've read the Gospels before. You've you've heard the the Passion story. You've lived through a, a few Easter's. We're familiar for this, but it was news to his disciples. What? Huh? What are you saying? Jesus has alluded to this all along, right? There's been little hints. There's been foretastes. He's he's told us that something's coming. But now Jesus is making explicit, 
and crystal clear, he will be suffering. He says, suffering many things. That's an understatement, isn't it? I mean, if you read the end of the, the book, you know what's going to happen to him. What he went through, the trial, the torture, the mockery. They spit on him. You ever had anybody spit on you? They pressed a crown made of thorns into his head. So the blood's pouring down over his face. Jesus knew that was coming. He will be suffering many things. And then he says, he will be killed. Which is unthinkable. I mean, this is the guy who walked on the water, right? He made all the, the bread, the, the, the bread, the, lo- the loaves and the fishes. He's healing people. He's bringing people back from the dead. Curing people of leprosy. What have we seen Jesus do so far in Matthew? He says he's going to be killed. And then he says on the third day he's going to rise again. Which is amazing news. Even more amazing news that's even harder for them to understand. He says in verse 21 that Jesus began to explain this to them. He's going to do it several times more as the book unfolds. This is the first of three major predictions of his passion where he lays it out for them. It becomes the theme of this last half of the book. We've really reached a new stage in Matthew. Did you catch the little word that packs such a big punch? M-U-S-T. Must. He must go to Jerusalem. He, He must suffer many things. He must be killed. The Greek word for must is even smaller. It's only three little letters, delta, epsilon, iota. This, this is in English, it's day. In New Testament Greek, whenever you see that day, it almost always means it's a divine necessity. God requires it. It must happen. This is something Jesus must do. It's not optional. It's not take it or leave it. It's something that has got to happen. Jesus had to take up his cross for us. Now, that's not the kind of thing that Peter had in mind when he said that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. It's not the kind of thing that most people in Jesus' day thought the Messiah ought to do. The Messiah, they thought, should be their rescuer from the Romans. The Messiah should conquer. The Messiah should bring a conquering kingdom, not be killed on a cross. So Peter gets it in his mind to rebuke Jesus. Yep, you heard me right. That never goes well, does it? Peter, I think, was feeling his Wheaties from his A++ answer in verse 16. So he decides to correct Jesus. No, you're you're the Christ. No, 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 that's, that's... Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Well, I'm glad he loved Jesus. I'm glad he didn't want to see Jesus be hurt. But Peter went from an A plus to an F minus minus. Verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. 
So much for Peter being the first pope. He certainly wasn't infallible. The first thing he said after being told that he was the rock was that he was an unwitting spokesman for the opposition. Get behind me, Satan. Cut it out. Get out of here. You're a rock, all right. But it's a stumbling rock. Whoop. If I come near you, I'm going to fall. You're trying to tempt me. You're trying to tempt me to give up doing things God's way and do things Satan's way. Jesus says, Satan already tried this approach in the desert. Remember Matthew chapter 3? He tried to get me to acquire the kingdom without the cross, to go around the cross. But it doesn't work that way. I've got to go through the cross. That's God's way. Jesus had to take up his cross for us. That's what God said. No getting around it. Any way of trying to bring the kingdom without going through the cross was, verse 23, man's way, not God's way. Strangely enough, the cross is God's way. We come here every Sunday and sing about the killing. Did you notice that? Every Sunday the songs are about death, death, killing Jesus. There must be something about that cross for us to do so much singing about it. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation. Friends, this is profound. Jesus knew what being the Christ really meant. He knew what that word contained. Yes, it will mean conquering, but first it will mean being crucified. Yes, it will mean the kingdom, but first it will mean the cross. Jesus knew that the Messiah was predicted not just in places like Psalm 2, or Psalm 110, but also in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced. For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jacob, I remember when you you could quote that from memory, right up here on the stage. He did it, and all the lights went out. Remember that? He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. We just sang that. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence. Nor was any deceit in his mouth. He didn't deserve it. Yet it was, hear this, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. 
After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus had to take up his cross or we would not be saved. It was the Lord's will. Now on that day, in Matthew 16, Peter did not understand. But thankfully, the Lord is patient with us. Amen? And eventually, Peter did understand. Probably better than most. In his first letter, Peter riffs on Isaiah 53 when he says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter understood then, oh, you do have to do this. Not never, but yes. And I'm so thankful he did. This is God's way of doing things. It's different from the world's way. It's different from man's way. It's definitely different from Satan's way. The world, the flesh, and the devil will tell you that you can have all kinds of blessings with no suffering. Anybody tell you that? They're lying to you. They might be smiling. They might, they might sound very plausible, but it's a lie. There are people who claim to be Christians who teach this sort of thing. We call it the prosperity gospel, and it's from the pit. You don't have to suffer. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, and live your best life now. But Jesus had to suffer. Paradoxically, in God's plan, suffering is the path to glory. Let me say that again. Paradoxically, in God's plan, suffering is the path to glory. The kingdom always comes through the cross. But Jesus is not the only one who has a cross to take up. Jesus is not the only one who is called to walk this path of suffering. Following Jesus as his disciple also calls for cross-bearing. Verse 24, or hide the word verse. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Not only did Jesus have to take up his cross for us, but Jesus calls us to take up our cross for him. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means self-denial and cross-bearing. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, that's, that's another way of saying if anyone wants to be my disciple, right? Sometimes we say, come after me, right? Like, let's fight, let's rumble. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying if anybody wants to oppose me. He's saying if, if anybody wants to get in line and go where I'm going, get, come after me, then this is what you do. If you want to line up behind Jesus and go where he's going, then there are just a few simple ground rules. Simple but not easy. Number one, deny yourself. Number two, take up your cross. And number three, just go ahead and follow him. Deny yourself. What does that mean? There's a lot of bad ideas circulating around there uh, about that idea. Does it mean fasting? Does it mean giving up nice things? Sometimes I think it does. It, it can lead to that. 
by the way, a couple weeks ago, John Walter was telling me that he's got a family member that wanted to bake me some cookies or something. And uh, remember this story, John? Yeah? You know what's coming. And uh, uh, his family member said to John, does, does Pastor Matt like dessert? And John says, well, he looks like he likes dessert. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Does denying yourself mean fasting? Does it mean giving up nice things? Sometimes I think it does. I think it can lead to that. But that's not the central idea. To deny yourself basically means to renounce yourself. Not just to deny yourself some good thing for a time, but to repudiate yourself. I would add, I would add to repudiate yourself as Lord. To deny yourself as your Lord. Who's your Lord? It's not you. Sometimes we act like it's us, right? To deny yourself as Lord. To give up being the boss of your own life. To disown yourself as the Lord of your own life. The captain of your soul. To stop following yourself. Stop following yourself. Have you done that? The shorthand word for that in the Bible is to repent. To turn around from following yourself, your desires, your own path, your own lordship, and take up your cross. That means to count yourself as dead or as good as dead. These people all had seen a cross do its terrible work. We have not seen it, and we would puke if we did. If you actually saw somebody being crucified. It's a shocking metaphor that Jesus would tell us to take up our cross. Sometimes we act like that means, like, that's my cross to bear. Like, that's a hard person, and I just got to have to deal with them. It's a lot more than that. For Jesus, it wasn't a metaphor. He actually took up this cross and carried it. He had to carry the beam up the road to his place of execution. Can you imagine? It's like lethal injection. Here, I want you to carry this bag. In it are the drugs I'm going to give you. Except it's just about killing you while you're carrying it. For some of his disciples, it wasn't a metaphor either. Tradition says that Peter, Mr. Get Thee Behind Me, Satan, was eventually crucified upside down. He didn't want to be crucified like his Savior was. He, he didn't think he was worthy of it. Crucify me upside down. I think that Jesus wants us to be ready to take this cross thing literally. We must be ready to lose our lives for Jesus' sake. This isn't something we're just playing on the weekends. Let's go to Jesus' club. Jesus wants us to be ready to take this cross thing literally. We must be ready to lose our lives for Jesus' sake, to accept the rejection of the world, to live our lives as on a death march to the world, the flesh, and the devil, especially to our flesh, to deny our flesh, to deny yourself and take up your cross. That's what it means to follow. So how are we doing at that? How do you measure? 
I was thinking this week, how do I, how do I talk about this idea? How are we doing at denying ourselves? This is not a question that we ask ourselves enough. How are we doing at living a life of repentance? One pastor I read this week has written about this, uh, about verse 24. He says, Christ follower, how's the self-denial going? Are you saying no to sin? Those sins that so easily entangle you? And are you saying yes to Christ doing something difficult for Jesus' sake? If you never do anything difficult for Jesus' sake, are you following him? Do you sacrifice time and money and convenience and comfort and safety to do those things that Jesus especially sees? The list he gives at Judgment Day, feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, receiving the stranger, clothing the naked, caring for the sick, visiting the imprisoned. Yes, self-denial is the sum of the Christian life. I was struck last Sunday when Abe Skasel prayed for our wild game dinner. Remember that last Sunday when he was praying for us? He prayed for all the same things that I would have prayed for if I were the prayer coordinator for this outreach. But he also prayed that God would humble us. Did you hear that when he prayed last week? It really hit me. I'm like, huh, I wouldn't have prayed that. I need that, but I wouldn't have thought to pray that. When was the last time you prayed that the Lord would humble you? When was the last time you prayed for the Lord's help in denying yourself? Of renouncing yourself as your own Lord? Jesus says that it's crucial. Look at the fours. There's three fours. One in verse 25. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Now that's paradoxical, isn't it? That's the opposite of what we tend to think. That's upside down, right? Just like his kingdom. Jesus said something almost exactly like this back in chapter 10, verse 38, where he's calling us to choose. He says, which one do you want more? For whoever wants to save his earthly life will lose it, but whoever loses his life in repentance and self-denial and cross-bearing will, for me, will find it. Which do you want more? The apostles lost their lives for Jesus. Paul lost his life for Jesus, and they found life in Jesus. Then there's another four in verse 26. It's, it's hidden in the Greek. It's not in your NIV. Probably some of your versions have it. For what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is explaining why we should take up our cross. This is how important it is. Because he's worth it. It's so easy to get our priorities out of whack. To chase after the world. Money, cars, sex, prestige, pleasure, power, family. For so many, family has become an idol. Health, wealth, prosperity, family, a good job. What if you give up your life to gain those things and don't give up your life to gain Christ? Would it be worth it? What's your soul worth? Jesus is worth it all. The most important words in verses 24 and 25 are the little two little word, me. Do you notice them? They can almost slip slip right on by. But he says, if anyone would come after me, he must follow me. He must lose his life, not just lose his life, but lose his life for me. Jesus is worth it all. 
And one day soon he will show that to be true. Verse 27, the last four. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now I think that that last promise in verse 28 is at least partially fulfilled in the transfiguration, which we will look at next week, Lord willing. But the first promise, the one in verse 27, will show that we've made the right choice in deciding to follow Jesus. The Son of Man, who's that? That's Jesus, is going to come in His Father's glory. What a thought that is. You know, we could take some Sunday and just take that phrase, His Father's glory, and coming in His Father's glory, and think about what that means. And with His angels... I cannot imagine. And when he comes, he will, Jesus says, reward each person according to what he has done. So if you have denied yourself and taken up your cross and followed him, then you will be richly rewarded in him. But if you have denied him and denied your cross and followed yourself, then you will get what you deserve. I don't know when that's going to happen, but I know that it's 2,000 years sooner now than it was when Jesus said it. And I know that Jesus said it to underscore how important it is to do this before it's too late. Do you want to come after Jesus? To line up behind Him? To be His disciple? His follower? To be rewarded by Him when He returns? Renounce yourself. Repent. Disown yourself as your own Lord. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. That's the path to glory. That's the path that Jesus walked for us and the path He calls us to walk for Him.